This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God Come what may. If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. I'm going to kick things off today with news about a new terrible bill in the state of California. And I always like to pay attention to what is going on legislatively in California, simply because if they can pull it off there, then they sometimes will spread the fun to the rest of the country where other blue states get certain ideas about California did it, so maybe we'll do it here. So the latest is called Assembly Bill 655. This thing is a nightmare. The Pacific Justice Institute Center for Public Policy recently issued a letter about this to the members of the Committee on Public Safety, and I just want to bring you up to speed on what this bill is all about. This is a bill that is ostensibly directed toward a serious concern involving members of law enforcement belonging to violent police gangs and other dangerous secretive groups, they say. The insidious presence of such activity within the L.A. Police Department has been widely reported. Violence has no constitutional protection, and it should have no place among uniformed officers, the vast majority of whom would repudiate such associations. So this bill ends up taking a shotgun approach, no pun intended, that would also harm upstanding honorable men and women in uniform who happen to believe differently than the author who happens to be, yes, a progressive. And they are calling it blatant viewpoint discrimination that's anathema to our constitutional values. Under the guise of addressing police gangs, this bill... AB 655 at the same time launches an inexplicable, unwarranted and unprecedented attack on peaceable, conscientious officers who happen to hold conservative political and religious views. They call it one of the most undisguised and appalling attempts we have ever seen in more than 20 years of monitoring such legislation on the freedom of association and freedom to choose minority viewpoints. This bill does it with extraordinarily sweeping definitions of hate groups and public expression. And if enacted, this legislation will almost certainly be struck down as unconstitutional, except I'm not sure of that anymore. Are you? Do you trust the courts? I don't trust the courts. After setting forth several definitions, section one of the bill, this particular subsection, which would require background investigations of law enforcement applicants, uh, have to include an inquiry into whether the candidate is currently or has in the past engaged in membership in a hate group, participation in hate group activities or public expressions of hate. Well, what does that mean? Does the Southern Poverty Law Center get to determine which hate group is at stake here? Maybe Alliance Defending Freedom or the Family Research Council or any number of the other wonderful conservative Christian organizations that the SPLC has smeared as hate groups? Mm, That's a good question. Under another subsection, a finding of such activity, even in the distant past, shall be grounds for denial of employment as a peace officer. So what does that mean? If you once were online in the past and you talked about something that the Family Research Council was doing, does that mean that you cannot be a police officer? 
seems to maybe leave the door open for something like that. The legislation proceeds to add another section which would similarly require the investigation of, upon an internal complaint or complaint by any member of the public, a peace officer's past or present membership in a hate group or public expression of hate. What does that mean? Who gets to define hate? You really want the progressives to define hate? The remedy is likewise sobering. A sustained complaint described in subdivision A shall be grounds for termination of a peace officer. So if you happen to ever have said something that runs afoul of progressive wokeism, you can lose your job. You can lose your job. That's what this is all about. Now, what are these hate groups? They go into some of the descriptions here, but they say the sweeping implications of some of the legislative wording here is readily apparent. A hate group summarized according to AB 655 is an organization that supports, advocates for, or practices the denial of constitutional rights of any group of persons based upon race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, or disability. So these are the questions that come up, and I think they're right in this. Here, here is what the Pacific Justice Institute asks. Are the many conservative organizations pejoratively labeled hate groups by the discredited Southern Poverty Law Center because they oppose radical LGBTQ ideology, actual hate groups within the meaning of this legislation? I would say that's likely a big yes. Is the Catholic Church a hate group because it advocates for the sanctity of life and thereby rejects the constitutional rights of women to obtain abortion? Well, that would apply to evangelicals as well. Are the thousands of churches in California which voiced support for Proposition 8, the traditional definition of marriage hate groups, because they opposed LGBTQ constitutional rights to marry? Are the careers of Muslim officers in jeopardy if the mosque where they offer prayers has ever spoken out against homosexuality or so-called gender equality? And is the Republican Party a hate group because it does not endorse gender identity as a constitutional right? If it isn't the author's intent to exclude from law enforcement the millions of Californians who are Catholic or conservative evangelicals or even just Republicans, they say this bill must be substantially rewritten to communicate a very different intent than what currently inheres from its language. Astonishingly, the definitions are so broad that even someone who does not adopt all of the organization's views, like a pro-choice Catholic, would still be excluded because the bill targets mere membership in the banal organization. And worse, this bill would exclude past members or associates of such groups, regardless of how much time has passed since that association. So you will pay for whatever horror you did in the past, even if you repudiated the group, like, you know, Senator Byrd, remember, was in the KKK. Would that make him a permanent hater? I mean, the Democrats didn't treat him that way. So what are we supposed to think? Whether the bill suffers from poor drafting or a view that past associations can never be cured, it's impossible to say. But I think they're right when they make the comment that this bill would usher in a new era of McCarthyism this time directed against religiously conservative public servants belonging to conservative or religious groups, pejoratively and unfairly labeled hate groups. Yet public employment cannot be conditioned on divulgence of organizational memberships in a misguided search for subversive activities. So this is something that weighs in our favor when he goes through all of the different case law pertaining to litigation that's previously been filed along these lines. You you can't do this constitutionally. The thing is, we're in a new era and everybody feels this and everybody senses this and everybody sees it every single day on the news. There is a purging taking place. It is undeniable. 
there it's so out of control and it only will get worse as time goes along if decent people in this country don't stand up against it. So I would urge you, if you live in the state of California, contact your lawmakers and really go after them not to pass this bill. This is just awful. And remember, this is the same state that was trying to get certain publications banned. They called it the Bible ban legislation because it was worded in such a way that you could possibly ban the Bible because it was so-called anti-LGBTQ. And thankfully, Christians rose up in California and made such a fuss about it, rightly so, that they, they pulled it back. So this needs to happen again in California. But can you imagine the mindset of anybody who would come up with that? And, and I don't believe for a minute that the wording of this bill was accidental, not for a second, because that's not how progressives operate. That's not how they operate. They have an agenda, and that is you need to be vilified and marginalized and polarized and kept out, and your dissent has to be made a crime at some point. And if, if they could get away with it, no doubt they would do it. So maybe this is just a trial balloon, but at any rate, pray against this piece of legislation. It's crazy. Now, one of the other directions I want to go in is is to talk a little bit about the purge. Now, I'm using that word, and I know it's a bit loaded, but when we talk about what progressives are trying to do to the United States and to the people of the United States who have decent opinions on things that may not go along with progressivism, it's very, very disturbing. And one of the ways that this has now shown up in recent days has to do with some of the weird things coming out of the U.S. military. Did you see the Guam National Guard was brought in to basically intimidate Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene because she erroneously asserted that Guam was a foreign land? What What are you doing using the military to try to intimidate a seated member of Congress? And it gets worse. We're going to come back on Janet Mefford today. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and and persevere as new followers of Jesus Christ. That's exactly why we're partnering with Bible League International to send Bibles to 1,500 new believers in Africa. $5 sends a Bible, $50 sends 10, and every gift given will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's an Open the Floodgates banner at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, and God bless you for caring. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start 
start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Well, I just mentioned the Guam National Guard members paid a visit to Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's office after her gaffe at CPAC about Guam not being part of America. It's an American territory. But here's the point about it. What I'm trying to say that that was an intimidation, which a lot of people have said online. I agree with them on this. It was friendly. It was a friendly visit. It wasn't like they showed up with machine guns or anything like that. But why is the military being deploy I mean, like they're dressed in their uniforms and they're showing up it, you have to take this in context it's just a weird thing to have these guys do it's just weird because now you wonder what else is possible if you have somebody on the other side of the political aisle from the woke military what happens what well, we found out what happens because of what happened recently with Tucker Carlson over on Fox News. Now, Tucker Carlson had talked a little bit about what's going on in China, some of the focus in China now on cultivating masculinity in the military, and he ended up making some comments about the U.S. military, and this drove our military to do some really insane things. I'm going to get into that in just a second, but first I want to go back to what Tucker had to say about this situation. Cut one. The problem, he said, was a national masculinity crisis. Chinese boys, quote, have been spoiled by housewives and female teachers, and they were becoming, as a result, quote, delicate, timid, and effeminate. In essence, they were becoming people who might listen to someone like Tony Fauci. Left unchecked, said the Chinese government advisor, the feminization of Chinese boys would, quote, inevitably endanger the survival and development of the Chinese nation. In January, China's government acted on this recommendation. The Education Ministry of China released a notice entitled Proposal to Prevent the Feminization of Male Adolescents. The goal was to, quote, cultivate students' masculinity. Have you seen this on other channels, by the way? Kind of interesting, isn't it? China won't explain the reasoning behind this plan, but there are some clues. Last year, we learned that China has quickly developed the world's largest naval force. In 2015, China had 255 battle force ships. Now they have more than 360. And many of those ships are more capable than anything in the American naval fleet. All right. And then he goes on. This is cut two. So how are we responding to this? Joe Biden addressed it effectively. What's the American military's response? Here's what Joe Biden said. Some of it's relatively uh, straightforward work where we're making good progress, designing body armor that fits women properly, tailoring combat uniforms for women, creating maternity flight suits, updating, uh, updating requirements for their st- hairstyles. And some of it is going to take an, uh, you know, an, an intensity of purpose and mission to really change the culture and habits that cause women to leave the military. So we've got new hairstyles and maternity flight suits. Pregnant women are going to fight our wars. It's a mockery of the U.S. military. While China's military becomes more masculine as it's assembled the world's largest navy, our military needs to become, as Joe Biden says, more feminine. Whatever feminine means anymore, since men and women no longer exist. The bottom line is it's out of control. 
and the Pentagon's going along with this. Again, this is a mockery of the U.S. military and its core mission, which is winning wars. Well, right. But we saw this kind of movement in the military under Obama. And I think this was his plan all along. You wanted to purge the military of anybody who was going to be a problem. And so I think, in my opinion, that's why you had a lot of attacks on religious liberty over the LGBT issue. It's a way to get Christians out of the military. And then you wanted to have transgender policies so you could get more progressives and progressive activist types in the military. You have people who are in leadership in the military who are willing to go along with the woke stuff. Well, what ends up happening? You you start valuing diversity over being the world's best fighting force at a time when China is really rattling the saber at us. You think this isn't terrifying? It's absolutely terrifying. And I'm glad that Tucker Carlson said it. I think it's ridiculous, too. You're not allowed to say this, though. You're not allowed to say this because what happened after this? Well, Commander-in-Chief Joe Biden's military began to go after Tucker Carlson. This was from press spokesman John Kirby, who is a retired public affairs Navy admiral. Uh, He went out in a video on Twitter and said the following. Cut three. I watched the clip that Mr. Carlson produced as he referred to pregnant women in the military. I'll remind everyone that his opinion, which he has a, a right to, is based off of actually zero days of service in the armed forces. Let me offer you my opinion. My opinion is based off of 28 years of actual service in the military, 28 years in the Marine Corps, in combat operations out at sea and in garrison. And so he was talking specifically about pregnant women in the armed forces today and how it makes us less less lethal and less fit and less ready. Let me tell you where he's wrong. Those decisions were made by medical professionals, by commanders and our civilian leadership that allows for women to have more time with their children to recuperate, to get fit and ready to take that time that's necessary that our medical professionals know is needed, which actually makes us a more lethal and ready and fit force, ready to fight the wars of today and the wars of tomorrow. The bottom line is that we value women in our, in our armed forces. We value the, those that have served in the past and we value those that have served today. We value our families in the military. This is just so dumb on so many levels. First of all, to have the military come out and go after a member of the press. Can you imagine if the military under Trump went after somebody in the press for saying something they didn't like? Oh, wait a minute. Let's go back in time. Let's go to June of 2020. This was at a time when President Trump was talking about, oh, I'd like to have the military there at my next inauguration. And good old Rachel Maddow over on MSNBC had this to say, cut four. It has been a creepy, evident lust of this president since literally his first day in office that he wanted to see this, that he wanted to see military hardware, missile launchers, tanks, aircraft all rolled out and put on display for him. You remember he wanted, he literally wanted tanks and missile launchers rolled down the streets of Washington, D.C. for his inauguration, right? You may also remember that his inauguration was a disappointment for the president in lots of ways, not least because he got an ill-attended tractor parade and, you know, baton twirlers instead of the missile launchers and Abrams tanks that he wanted ripping up D.C.'s streets to celebrate him. Well, it took three plus years of him in office, but he finally got his military in the streets. One of the things that has been weighing extra heavily on the sort of death of the Republic scale that we all keep handy these days, um, is that no one will quite admit in the Trump administration and even in the military 
as to what it is exactly they're doing with these threats to use the U.S. military against the American people. No one will quite admit to what exactly they're participating in and who exactly is making it happen and what exactly is being unfurled here. Unbelievable, because at the time you didn't have the commander in chief Trump's military saying anything to Rachel Maddow, as the Federalist points out. So why go after Tucker Carlson? And it wasn't just that one person I played for you earlier. You also had other parts of the military, other people in the military on Twitter going after Tucker Carlson. It's really, really bad. And I agree with this writer at The Federalist that there must be fallout from this. Reporters of all stripes need to apply maximum outrage and pressure upon the DOD for this, lest it become standard operating practice. Senators must use all the tools at their disposal to demand accountability. And I know that Texas Senator Ted Cruz has already called for that. Here's the problem, though. And I think I really appreciate what Revolver News said about this. The military has become just as dysfunctional as every other institution in America, and soon it could get even worse. For starters, the woke turn of the armed forces isn't an innovation of the newly arrived Biden administration. It's been going on for years. And the writer even points out it continued throughout the Trump administration. Yes, he had some victories returning to the ban on service for transgenders, but the Trump military was entirely invested in making it as easy as possible for the military to keep pregnant women in active service. I'm sorry, but having been a pregnant woman, that's insane. Every woman knows that's insane. Okay, I shouldn't say every every clear-thinking woman knows that's insane. Every clear-thinking man knows that's insane. If China comes after us as a nation and tries to start a world war, really? Is that that's the lethal fighting force you'll unleash? I'm not saying that they're putting pregnant women in combat, but I want men fighting for me. I'm not saying women can't have a role in the military. That's just my opinion. I want men fighting for this country for obvious reasons. They have different kinds of standards for males versus females in the military anyway, because if they have the same standards, the women can't pass those standards because women and men are not the same. Women do not have the same physical makeup of most men in the military or most men, period. So we all know this, but we're not allowed to talk about biological reality anymore. And so somebody who does talk about biological reality gets slapped by the military publicly. That is dangerous. That's really dangerous. And the wokeness of the military should scare all of us. I was looking at somebody who put out on Twitter something from the Navy's website uh, talking about being a dominant naval force that can outthink and outfight any adversary. And they have a bunch of book recommendations here, one of which is Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's a transformative concept that reorients and re-energizes the conversation about racism. Oh, that's important in the military. Oh, we can't talk about that at work, how to talk about race, religion, politics, and other polarizing topics. Uh, Let's see, there's a book called Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women in the Way Forward. And oh, one of my favorites, Sexual Minorities in Politics by Jason Pearson. Here's the description. The political representation and involvement of sexual minorities in the United States has been highly contested and fiercely debated as recent legislative and judicial victories create inroads towards equality for this growing population. Members and advocates of these minorities navigate evolving political and legal systems while continuing to fight against societal and institutional resistance. And then there's another one about the new Jim Crow mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. What does this have to do with fighting and winning wars, especially at a 
time when China poses an extreme danger to the United States, among other enemies, North Korea included, Iran included. And we're messing around with diversity and calling pregnant women or women in general a lethal fighting force and going after journalists. This is getting really scary, folks. It really is. And, and when you consider how determined the progressives are to just upend everything that the United States has done right for the last several decades, we better be willing and ready to defend the United States militarily. And the people of the United States deserve that. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. If you are a mom or dad, do your kids open up to you at home and really tell you what's on their minds? Or maybe not so much sometimes. Many Christian parents are rightly concerned that their communication with their children at any age isn't always the best. But is there a way that we can change that dynamic and deepen our connection with our kids? We're going to talk about that today with Becky Harling, who's a speaker, leadership coach, and trainer with the John Maxwell team. And we'll be discussing her book. It's called How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. Becky great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, it is great to be with you, Janet. Thank you. Well, why do you think it is that we run into these problems? I think we often think of teenagers not wanting to talk, but sometimes it kind of runs the age gamut, doesn't it? What is going on, do you think, with kids not always wanting to open up with their parents? Yeah, I think it does run the age gamut. And I think a big problem is I think as parents, we have a lot to say, you know, so we give a lot of commands, make your bed, clean your room, pack your homework, you know, all those things. But we're not taking the time to focus on connecting rather than just correcting. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And that's difficult, isn't it? Because the more that they might resist, for example, some of those commands that we rightly have to give to them to clean up and do chores and stuff like that. Does that impact, do you think, in a lot of ways, the degree to which kids clam up and don't want to talk because I don't want to be told to make my bed? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, sometimes when we over-talk as parents, then kids build walls, and eventually they just tune us out. You know, it's like the old eye-rolling thing, you know, oh, I know what she's going to say anyway, so I'm not really going to listen. Yes. Yeah, that does often happen. You know, you have four kids. Is it the case that your four kids all kind of went through periods of time where they just didn't want to talk or interact very much with you? Oh, totally. And then, but I, you know, our kids uh, were very verbal, actually. Um, But there were times where they didn't want to talk. And uh, another thing with some of our kids is we had one in particular who was an amazing negotiator, you know, (laughs) and it was just, I mean, from the time she was a toddler, it would be like, 
oh, my word, are you kidding me? Does she have an argument for everything? And, you know, that really was a pivotal moment in my parenting, Janet, because I had to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I am sure I am messing this child up in that messy situation with me crying before him, (laughs) saying, Becky, give her a voice. And that was not what I was expecting to hear. Well, that's an interesting thing. So when you're talking about giving your kids a voice, which is one of the concepts that you talk about in the book, what do you mean? Because theoretically, they can talk, so they certainly wouldn't be able to voice their opinions if they wanted to. The, The issue so often becomes, why won't they just do it on their own? How do you act in in a proper way as a Christian mom and do what you're supposed to do as a Christian mom and give them a voice, but not so much that they're running the show. Yeah, I think that there's a balance, and this is why we need wisdom from God. But what I believe God wants us to do as Christian parents is to shape our child's voice, not silence it. So in other words, I think as Christian parents, sometimes when our kids start in and they have a different idea, you know, we give the age-old answer, I'm your mom, I said so, just do it, right? Yes, (laughs) yes. That doesn't really work because they might need to express their opinion, or maybe they've thought of an angle that you haven't thought of yet. And we want to raise kids that have a strong voice so that later in life, they can shape their society for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's excellent. So I know you mentioned some of the concepts you and your husband had for raising your kids and giving them a voice. One was wisdom, which is so foundational. That's so important for us to seek the Lord's wisdom in dealing with our kids. But also you mentioned this need to reestablish feelings that were toppled over. What do you mean there? What are you talking about? Yeah, so that came out of, we, Steve and I, my husband, Steve and I, needed kind of a foundational verse for raising our kids. And Proverbs 24, 3 and 4 says, By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. And that couplet through through understanding it's established, really, if you analyze the Hebrew, it gives the picture of something that's been toppled over that is set aright. And as a parent, you think of all the places where your child gets toppled over in their feelings. Your job as a parent is to offer them understanding and empathy and reestablish those toppled over feelings. Well, and that can be easier said than done sometimes because kids can be so different. How have you navigated that sort of situation in your own family effectively? Yeah, so we had four kids, as I wrote about in the book, and each had a different personality. And I remember one day our son came home from school and he really seemed down. And I said, how was your day? I got the typical answer, fine. I said, how did you do on your spelling test? And then he he started to cry and he said, I got 105. Uh. And I mean, who cries over 105, right? Right. So I said, I, you know, I paused and asked God for wisdom. And then I said, JJ, tell me why you're crying. And he said, because I cheated. And so we had to have a big conversation about cheating and what prompted him to do that. And then, of course, we went back to the school and apologized to the teacher. And he had to, you know, take responsibility. But I think at other times in our family, 
kids maybe didn't make the soccer team they wanted to be on. And we would have to offer understanding and say, man, that is so hard. But we believe that you're still, you know, a good soccer player and really just empathizing with them. Right. I think that says something about you. If your son opened up so easily and when he was asked about the 105 tears, admitted to you that he cheated because there are a lot of kids who would have covered that up. Well, that's true. And, you know, JJ is now a grown man and we laugh about that situation a lot because the most horrible part for him was going back to the teacher and admitting what he had done. Yes. But, you know, I I, I think you really want to continually go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I need wisdom here. I mean, parenting just is not a really easy thing to do, is it? No, (laughs) I I can attest to that. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) Yeah, you're right about that. And you also stress that you have to study their uniqueness to guide them the way the Lord designed them to go. You mentioned before that your four kids have very different personalities. I have four kids who have very different personalities, so I relate to that. But how do you go about doing that? You know, for example, if you have an introverted child versus as an extroverted child, you know, what does it mean to help them go the way that God designed them to go? You have to understand that, you know, God hasn't created every child to be an extrovert, you know. So for some kids, it is going to be harder for them to open up and share their feelings with you. For some kids, it's going to be more challenging to make friends. And so that's where we come alongside of your child. And, you know, the child that's introverted, you might not have a huge birthday party for them. You might say, why don't you pick one person and we'll have that person over. Or if they're really quiet on the car ride home from school, you give them longer to express what happened in school, you know, and you don't fill every silence with talking. That's right. And well, and kids will open up in different situations, won't they? Depending on their personality, some kids will start talking if you're doing an activity, but if you sat them down face to face, they might not be so inclined to open up. Absolutely. I I think, you know, for some kids, it is, as you mentioned, doing an activity together. Other kids, they really need a snack to prompt them. Mm. And so, you know, snack time after school is a great time to talk. Other kids will open up at the dinner table, especially if you make it fun and if there's not tension at the dinner table. Other kids, I, I have one grandchild who opens up best at night when his parents are tucking him in and rubbing his back. That's when they figure out what he's been feeling all day. That's good. So you have to just know your child. You do. And I like the food angle because kids do love food. And that's a really good piece of advice to get kids talking. Hey, you want a cookie, glass of milk? Let's talk. There's a lot more to talk about. We're going to do so with Becky Harling when we come back from this break. How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk is the name of her book. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just 
Candace to mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health care program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new health care program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit health care sharing ministry that offers affordable health care sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237 855-585-4237 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Becky Harling, who is a speaker and leadership coach and trainer with the John Maxwell team, also author of the book we're discussing called How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. This is the goal, I think, of every Christian parent. I just want my kids to open up, tell me what's going on in their lives and have that close connection and relationship that hopefully will last for a lifetime. And Becky's helping us with that. Becky, you give some really good advice here to parents in the book. One is learning what your nonverbals as a parent are saying to your children. What is that all about? That is huge. You know, as parents, uh, we, we send a lot of nonverbals. Nonverbals are the way you communicate without using words. So, you know, we've all joked about the mother look, right? When <laughs> yes. your kid is misbehaving, you yes. know? And so we really have to watch our nonverbals. Uh, this is particularly important when they're little, but it's also very important when they're teenagers. You know, I learned quickly when my kids were teens to not have a shocked face mm. when they were telling me something, because if my face looked shocked, they would shut down. You know, for small children, one of the most important nonverbals is to have your eyes light up when they come home, really all through a child's life, this is important. Do you look happy to see your kids? Do you greet them with a hug? Are you uh, looking them eyeball to eyeball? Now, there are times when your child is not able to look you in the eye, and you got to give grace for that, but they've got to see you modeling that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And and you think about all the times maybe when the kids walk into the house and you're distracted or you're having a bad day and you're not even thinking about those things. So it seems like half the battle is paying attention to your nonverbals. Yes, absolutely. You know, there's been so many great studies done on nonverbals and the signals we send with those. Uh, probably my favorite biblical story about that is the story of the prodigal father, where when his rebellious kid comes home, the father really could be standing back with his arms crossed and expressing a frown. And instead, 
he runs to his rebellious child, throws his arms around him, and tells him how much he loves him. Yeah, that's a great one. Also, you mentioned the impact of paying attention. And I know in the age of the cell phone and the computer and how busy everybody is these days, that can be a big nonverbal that would turn a kid off from wanting to open up and talk if mom is glued to her phone. Can you talk about that a little bit and and how parents should navigate that situation? Yeah, I think today's parent is glued to their phone for lots of reasons. I mean, during COVID, we want to connect. So we're on Facebook or Instagram or some other social media, you know, and if you go to a a park right now and and you look around at what parents are doing while their kids are playing, you'll notice that 90% of them are on their phones, right? And so as parents, we want to be fully present to our kids at different moments of the day. Now, I'm not saying give your child 24-7 constant attention. What I am saying is choose times of the day where you're going to put your phone in a different room. One of those times being when they first get home from school, if your child is in, uh, you know, present learning right now, put your phone away. Or if you're helping your child with online learning, certainly put your phone away. Yes. Put your phone away during dinner and really tune into your child. You can always answer that email later. Yes, you can. That's that's a really important, good piece of advice that you have there. And also talking about helping them to find their feelings. You, you might think maybe wrongly that your kids always know exactly what's going on in their own heads. Such is not always the case. Sometimes it takes a little unwinding, doesn't it? Yeah, it definitely does. I, I think for small children, sometimes it's helpful to give them the language to express their feelings. Uh, in the book, I tell a story of when my grandson, my little grandson, Noah, his little sister wrote all over his art project and Noah uh, flipped over his chair and stormed out of the room. And while his mom was taking care of his little sister who had done the scribbling, I kind of got down on my knee with Noah and I said, Noah, When somebody scribbles on your art project, how does that make you feel? And do you feel frustrated? And he said, yes. And I said, can you stay frustrated? And he said, frustrated. You know, and what was funny is later that day, he he had a friend over and both their little sisters got into their stuff and both boys came running out into the living room dancing all around saying, I feel frustrated. (laughs) (laughs) You taught them a word for life. That's going to be used a lot, I'm sure. (laughs) That's the way it goes. But that that is helpful because then there's something that your grandson can say that previously he wasn't able to express and then he'll have that tool. Right, exactly. And you're acknowledging and you're listening to them that their feelings make sense and their feelings are important. You know, we never want to diminish kids' feelings. I like that. How about affirming their strengths? This is another point that you make in your book. Uh, Everybody, I think, understands that kids need encouragement and kids need to have that empathetic ear while they're being encouraged. And and just to feel not so much, you know, on the self-esteem train necessarily, but but at least saying, "I, I affirm you, you've got some great talents, you've got some great gifts. How do you do that without seeming fake about it? Sometimes you'll have parents just kind of go overboard. You're the most beautiful kid who ever lived, you know, that kind of thing. And then kids mm-hmm. will get cynical and go, mom, you're my mom. You know, what, what, is the, what is the balance there in between genuine praise and over the top praise? 
Well, I, I think we have to um, become a student of our child. And their strengths, if you're studying them, will become apparent to you, just as they become apparent to other uh, people in their life. You know, one of the most significant things we did for our daughter who was turning 13, we knew that the teen years were going to be perilous for her. And so on her 13th birthday, we told all her friends, we're having a birthday party for her. And we want you to come with a list of 13 qualities that you see in Carrie's life. Mm. And, you know, then we were able to look for trends, you know, do you realize how many people said you're kind? Do you realize how many people said you're compassionate, that you're fun, you know, and so we've just listed these different things. And Carrie went back through that album that we eventually put together for her throughout her teen years. That's neat. That's really neat. And more permanent, certainly, than the latest toy. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Sure. And and the interaction part, Becky, is so important going back to this particular subject. When you are talking about bringing your child out of his or her shell and you're asking great questions, for example, you warn parents, don't interrogate. Where is the line <laughs> between asking great questions and interrogation? Some of us walk that fine line now and then. Yeah, absolutely. And so a a great question is an open-ended question that is fun. So interrogating looks more like, okay, how much homework do you have tonight? How were your grades in school? How are you behaving? What did you do at the party last night? You know, your kid can tell whether they're being interrogated. Fun questions are questions like, What do you like most about your friend? What do you think makes a good friend? When do you feel most loved by me? When do you think the, what do you think is the answer to racial prejudice? You know, or when did you feel like a superhero today? Giving your child ways where they can express their opinion in a fun, non-threatening way. Good. Avoiding the setup of the monosyllabic answer. That's always a good strategy. <laughs> Otherwise, yes, yep. no, no, yes, no. Can I go now? <laughs> you don't want to get into yes. that. Absolutely. And I really appreciate your stress here that you want to teach your kids to have that relationship with the Lord, teach them to pray, pray for them, pray with them. Talk a little bit about that, how you really give your children a solid spiritual foundation, because that's the most important thing. It really is. And again, just like in connection to you as the parent is very important, particularly if you want a relationship with them later in life. Connection with God is very important. And so prayer needs to be a regular part of your home. You know, your kids need to see you praying. How much do you prioritize prayer as a parent? Do they ever see you praying aside from praying over dinner, let's say? Do they know that you pray for them? You know, uh, with our kids, we uh, we liked making prayer a part of everything, you know, and so we would often just stop and pray right there. We gave our kids prayer journals. I wrote about when I was diagnosed with cancer when our youngest was 10 and how she wrote to the Lord about that in her prayer journal. And and we want to send our kids the message that God is a God who bends down to listen. He listens to every feeling, every thought. 
and he will always be there. That's wonderful. Becky Harling, the name of the book, How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. A great discussion and a great book. Becky, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. God bless you. Becky Harling, thanks for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. Always great to have you along, and we'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Meffer today has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.